0: Welcome to The Buzz, I'm Christopher Conover. This week, what powers do states have at the border? Arizona is among a handful of states where the legislature is trying to take immigration or border enforcement out of federal hands and put it into state law. The rash of bills comes after years of political stalemate in Congress on reforms to border issues. But the issue goes back more than a decade with past efforts like Arizona's SB 1070 or California's Proposition 187. We start today's show with Lynn Marcus, a professor of law at the University of Arizona and clinic director at the James E. Rogers College of Law. She starts by telling us why states cannot enforce federal immigration law at the border.
1: Article 1 of the Constitution grants the Congress the power to establish, quote, a uniform rule of naturalization. And that's presumably because it would be chaos if individual states could set their own rules as to who's eligible for U.S. citizenship. But since the late 1800s, the courts have also found that the federal government has to be able to set and enforce immigration laws and policies generally because that's inherent in national sovereignty. National sovereignty means not only having control over the, the territory, but also being able to conduct foreign relations and immigration impacts all aspect of foreign relations, trade, investment, tourism, diplomatic relations, you know, how U.S. citizens are treated abroad. And so when you have a patchwork of policies on how immigration is regulated, that creates problems with foreign relations.
0: And that was really the crux of the U.S. Supreme Court's ruling that struck down SB 1070 more than a decade ago. Arizona, show me your papers law.
1: Yeah. I mean, the, the court in that case was looking at, you know, how you draw the lines, um, looking at other, you know, cases that that have been drawing the lines uh, over the years in terms of what states can and can't do. and And they basically have Three lines. They they can't um, pass ordinances that regulate immigration, um, that determine who gets to come in or the conditions under which they can remain, and that's the exclusive domain of the of the federal government. For example, there was an ordinance in Texas that required landlords to review um, documents to determine immigration status before renting to someone, and the federal court found that that was an unlawful regulation of immigration because it would keep some legal residents from being able to uh, rent, and the courts found that that was really a backdoor attempt to regulate immigration. Um, and then, second, the courts can't make rules where Congress has expressly, what they call, occupied the field. So, with the scheme, you know, with the scheme that that addresses whatever the problem is, and the prime examples there was in uh, the case on SB ten seventy, Arizona versus United States, um, that was back in twenty twelve. And that was because Arizona wanted to pass a law, making it a crime for certain people to work without authorization. And Congress in 1986 had already looked at all the policies, made choices, passed a comprehensive scheme of employer sanctions, you know, rather than worker sanctions. Third is the states and localities can't make rules that conflict with federal immigration laws. And um, I think a good example there is a new law in Texas that criminalizes illegal entry into the state and requires state judges to issue deportation orders. And the lawyers in that case recently argued in district court. And the judge said, look, I'm sympathetic to the state's concerns about the surge of migrants crossing the border um, and resources for the state. But state court judges are going to have to decide whether to follow state law which doesn't have any provision for asylum and other kinds of defenses to deportation or federal law which does those are the three man- main rules that the courts have you know sketched out but of course you know the state and local laws can't violate other laws either like with the infamous uh, Maricopa County Sheriff Joe Arpaio federal court found that you know he and his deputies um conducted race based traffic stops and Work raids and uh, you know those violate the the rights of immigrants and citizens as well.
0: You mentioned that Texas law where they said you cannot come into Texas without proper authorization, basically, and the the courts are striking that down. I'm sure there are a number of other states uh, that would like to try that, or if not states. Members of legislatures and things like that—they might not get it past A, a governor—is this a new idea that Texas is trying, or have other states tried this in the past? And Texas is just hoping for a, a better, what they view as a better outcome legally.
1: I mean, no, it's definitely, definitely not—you know—the first time Justice Scalia was, was a dissenter in the um, SB 1070 case, and and he pointed out, look, states having you know control over who comes in and out of the state goes back to like before the founding of the United States and the constitution didn't expressly, you know, take that away. So he's obviously got a different uh, viewpoint. And, you know, in Texas, the state of Texas is clearly ready to take that on and run it run it up the flagpole to the Supreme Court and see if the, if the outcome this time is different. But there were a rash of state laws and local ordinances in, I think it was basically the the early 2000s. And there was really a concerted effort by immigration restrictionists and think tanks where they actually, where they got together and, and drafted SB 1070. And there were five states with copycat laws. And so really, uh, I think building up I- until the Supreme Court decided that Arizona versus United States case on SB 1070, they were just Sort of an explosion and a and a you know concerted national effort to try to uh, restrict immigration on state and local level.
0: When we go and look at the legal history of all of this and states not being allowed to enforce immigration laws, we also see things like Operation Stone Garden, where local law enforcement, be it police officers, sheriffs, deputies can help the Border Patrol out. Now it's state officers working with Border Patrol. How do they get around all of these rulings and the laws that say, no, 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 this is federal, not state?
1: Well, there's a specific provision of the Immigration Nationality Act called 287G. And these states and counties, I think, uh, enter into these 287G agreements where the Department of Homeland Security deputizes selected officials to perform certain functions of immigration agents, which is what happened with uh, what happens with Operation Stone Garden, And um, there has to be some training and supervision by ICE. You know, so those have been around uh, for quite a while. And I believe that Biden said he was going to not enter into any new ones and, and basically stop doing that because there have been a lot of problems with them. Um, including the racial profiling of Latinos that happened in Maricopa County uh, with its 287G agreement at the time. And also with like fear and distrust of law enforcement that can happen, you know, that can actually hinder public safety uh, efforts and community policing. And I should mention these agreements like Stone Garden can end up costing the counties a lot of money. Ironically, they get money in the short term and then Uh, All the overtime pay leads to increase in pension costs that the local taxpayers foot the bills for. But that's, you know, to get back to your original question, that's how uh, there is this collaboration because it's specifically authorized by, you know, provisions in in U.S. law. But also states can do do things that don't conflict. Um, They can require, for example, certain types of state benefits and resources only to be applied to people with lawful immigration status as as long as they're not making those determinations using their own laws and standards and they're using like a federal database, a federal system.
0: State governors seem to have a lot of power when it comes to declarations of emergency. If Texas, Arizona, New Mexico, California, Florida were to declare immigration emergencies somehow, would that give them any more power that wouldn't get them in trouble with the federal government to enforce their own immigration laws like that Texas law or is it very clear you can declare an emergency for a tornado or a hurricane or a flood but you cannot declare one for immigration
1: I mean whatever you know declaring an emergency doesn't get you around the you know the court standards for what you know states and localities are are authorized to do and, and what crosses the line so um I mean I think you know, that's the that's the bottom line.
0: All right. Well, thanks for spending some time with us and trying to clear up uh, what is obviously, I won't say a murky part of law, but a complicated part of U.S. law.
1: If I can give my own two cents, Christopher. Sure. I think that, you know, from my perspective, a lot of these efforts of to enforce immigration laws on the local level are, you know, are misguided. You know, they, they tend to have backlash against the state boycotts. And they don't always take into account, you know, what happens if we actually get rid of a lot of immigrant workers that we that we need in our states. And so like if, if, if we're, what you're going to try to do is, is, you know, not politically grandstand and score points, but actually solve problems, it's going to have to be done on the national level with, you know, comprehensive solutions that look at, you know, like the mismatch of our visas and, and our employers needs and root causes and the whole rash of things that these state provisions don't take into account.
0: That was University of Arizona law professor Lynn Marcus. After we spoke with her, a federal judge put Texas's new law on hold. That law would have allowed the state to enforce its own immigration laws. Now that we've heard what states can and can't do, we ask how they can help federal law enforcement at the border. Victor Manjarez Jr. is a former chief border patrol agent for the U.S. Border Patrol's Tucson- and El Paso sectors, and is the current director of the Center for Law and Human Behavior at the University of Texas, El Paso. I started by asking him how enforcing immigration law at the border is different from local law enforcement.
2: And that's a great question because, you know, when you think of local police officer, either the city police, the sheriffs, or even the state troopers, they uh, all have peace officer status. And, and whereas a, a federal law enforcement agent, as a Border Patrol agent, does not. And, and what that means is, you know, uh, a police officer could, could, you know, cite you or arrest you for a misdemeanor, anywhere from a misdemeanor to a felony. And for a, a Border Patrol agent, uh, statutorily, uh, they could arrest you for a felony in their presence of you. You know, great example, let's say they're uh, at the 7-Eleven getting a cup of coffee and there's a guy, there's an armed guy that comes in robbing the place and he's watching it go down. He would technically have the arrest authority to arrest him for a felony. Now, of course, uh, you, the arrest would come up and the uh, um, the local law enforcement would be called and they would hand that person over.
0: That's a big difference. It sounds like it's pretty small, but when you start thinking about that, and especially in the presence of you, they're not running off a report as as the sheriff's office, the troopers, the local police officers can do.
2: It sure is. You know, and I had look at in my career in the Border Patrol, you know, a good portion of that was in Southeast Arizona. There was a time in Cochise County where the sheriff's department had about a three-hour window that they had no deputies on duty. When I was the agent in charge in Douglas, you know, the Douglas station at that time, we had 600 Border Patrol agents. So we were the largest law enforcement entity in Cochise County. And so what often would happen was the 911 dispatch system would actually send the calls to the Douglas Border Patrol station during, during that time span. And we would dispatch a Border Patrol agent or two, whatever it took, in essence to be in route why a Cochise County deputy is being called to head out. And let's say someone calls, it's, you know, perceived kind of a life and death situation. Hey, someone's breaking into my house, things of that nature. What you want to do is stop the threat. And so what it does by dispatching the Border Patrol agents, it gave the deputies time to get ready to go.
0: Right. So long as somebody with a badge and flashing lights is on the way, we can, you know, get it stabilized until the local officials show up type of thing.
2: Absolutely, right? It's kind of like, I guess, in easier terms, you know, you're driving down I-10, you see a vehicle, and uh, parking on the side of the road, what do we do? The brake lights come on. And then you drive by and go, wow, there's no one in it. It's that idea of providing some kind of deterrence, some kind of perception of a consequence.
0: So talking about local law enforcement, or even the National Guard. We hear often local law enforcement National Guard being sent to the border. Right now it's going on out-of-state uh, local officers being sent to Texas. National Guard has been sent to the Arizona border before and various other border crossings. Is that helpful to agents, or is that does it just really turn out to be more for show and the agents continue doing what they were doing?
2: It is not only helpful for the agents, but I think it's it's helpful, generally, uh, kind of the bigger purpose, right? So so when you look at, at uh, deployment of the National Guard, you know, the largest deployment of the National Guard was uh, during a time frame uh, called uh, Operation Jumpstart. And it was, uh, I believe, 2006, 2007, there were 6,000 Border Patrol agents deployed to the southwest border. And so at that time, there was really close coordination between... The uh, Department of Homeland Security and the National Guard, because you got to remember the National Guard, there is two. T- there's two funding mechanisms, right? I think it's uh, and forgive me if I got these incorrect. I think it's Title 10 and Title 32. Uh, one of them the governor pays for, it, and the other one the feds pay for. It. Under the federal deployment, it, it was much more coordinated effort. We had a, a, at our headquarters and said, okay, we're going to be sending National Guardsmen from Guam. You know, where do you need them at? We need them in Ajo, Arizona, right? And they'd be sent there. What kind of uh, skill sets do you need? We need surveillance capabilities. Not so much to do the interdiction, but eyes and ears to see what's going on to provide that platform, transportation services, mechanical service, things of that nature. Whereas what you're seeing now are the states that are deploying a National Guardsman. And so when you see National Guardsmen being deployed to Arizona and to Texas from other states... That coordination is happening within the state, but I'm not sure how tied that is actually with the Department of Homeland Security.
0: I remember, and you're right, it was around 2006 or so, Operation Jumpstart, there were Kansas National Guardsmen, Somewhere near Yuma, and they were building what we now know as the wall. Um, and they were all amazed because it was summer, and they were from Kansas, and they had to be in their leathers for welding, and they were they could only work at night uh, because it was so hot. Obviously, something the Border Patrol wouldn't be doing. But we've, as you mentioned, we've seen them act as mechanics and and all kinds of other things. I guess the idea is to free up. Sworn agents, border patrol agents, to go and work on interdiction, and let somebody else handle the office and the back of house support stuff.
2: That's absolutely correct. When we see a border patrol agent out in the field, what we don't see is the logistical requirement that's behind, right? And that logistical requirement may be in everything from from transportation to to someone uh, watching and caring for detainees someone processing the uh, detainees, someone feeding the detainees. If they're criminal by nature and they're being prosecuted, who's running them to the uh, U.S. Marshal's office, right, for detention to be presented? It's a really uh, long and large logistical tale. And so when you have National Guardsmen that, that come out and are deployed in those type of activities, it relieves a Border Patrol agent that was doing it and, and put them back out in the field. And, and so that is the, the very big benefit. Certainly was a big benefit for uh, Operation Jumpstart.
0: If you were in charge of the border for a day. No, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Understandable. <laughs> we'll keep it a hypothetical. We won't put your name in uh, for that. But someone came to you and said, you can have the state resources that you need what would you tell them the Border Patrol needs the states to do? Maybe it's not people. It might not be sending officers. It might be something else. What would you tell them the states need to do to help the Border Patrol?
2: Well, if it wasn't officers and if it wasn't National Guardsmen, what I have found in my career is that if you can deliver a consequence to the act of entering the country illegally, it has a really big effect. And it doesn't even have to be 100% consequence across the board. What I had found, it was anywhere from, it would range anywhere from 20 to 30% of the population If you deliver a consequence that had a detrimental effect or a kind of a chilling effect of kind of turning the spigot off of the flows. And that consequence could be a formal deportation. It could be a criminal prosecution for smuggling. It could be moved to return voluntary to a different part of the southern border anything to break up that smuggling ring, and any prosecution that the state could pick up. For example, narcotics violations. You know, there was a time in the 2000s that the district attorney for the state of Arizona would not prosecute a marijuana case if it was under 500 pounds. So if you had 499 pounds, they wouldn't prosecute at the federal level. And so what we ended up doing was going to the state and counties level. And it was great because they never said no. The problem, though, is we taxed our resources. You know, the states would come up and say, man, could you beef up some of your prosecution units? Could you beef up those type of things? Or or even temporarily, can you bring them from other counties that maybe are uh, at a slower pace? Because you'd have enough of a consequence to, to actually start to turn off that flow that's coming across right now.
0: It sounds like you would also be in favor of what is known as Operation Stone Garden, where local law enforcement helps with patrols in certain areas, and their traffic stops can be used as a pretext to check someone's immigration status.
2: Yes, I've always been a fan of Stone Garden, provided that the states or the local entities work with the department. It really uh, serves... Uh, the board will no good if you have the state or local entities kind of doing their own thing uh, on that, It ha- really has to be a coordinated effort. I would often tell my staff in Tucson when I would hear the briefings, they'd, they'd be talking about collaborating. The little hair in the back of my neck would go up on that because I didn't want to hear collaborating. Collaborating to me was just a lot of talk over coffee and nothing getting accomplished. But what I wanted to hear was that we were coordinating. We were integrating our resources. For example, you know, if a place, let's say in uh, Cochise County, and you're focused uh, near Douglas and Preta or that area between Douglas and Naco, and you can't get to the eastern part, but you've got Cochise uh, Sheriff's deputies that are in our six-day overtime could patrol the road. Their own jurisdiction, not immigration, but their own jurisdiction, because from a distance, you know, All you see is a law enforcement officer. You don't know if it's a deputy, you don't know if it's a Border Patrol agent, and that provides a huge value.
0: It sounds like communication is key and communication up front. Don't just have Kansas send National Guard troops to the border and tell the governor, but you should call the Border Patrol first. Um, And communication is key.
2: It really is. You know, if if you're going to have a party, you might as well organize it a little bit,
0: right? All right. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for your time. You're very welcome. That was Victor Manjares Jr., former chief patrol agent for the U.S. Border Patrol's El Paso and Tucson sectors. And that's the buzz for this week. You can find all our episodes online at azpm.org and subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for The Buzz Arizona. We're also on the NPR app. Zach Ziegler is our producer and our music is by Enter the Haggis. I'm Christopher Conover. Thanks for listening.